When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Let's go with the jingle. Oh, grab a seat or we'll sweep you off your feet. We move, we groove, you got mail. Ease your legs, rest a while, all you gotta do is smile. We're swell, can't you tell you got Mel? When the show begins, you better hold on real tight. Or before you know it, you'll be high as a kite. Take a break, settle down, we're the only show in town. SRO, don't you know you got Mel? Give it up, don't think twice, we're a hurricane on ice. What the hell, give it yell, ring your bell, show and tell. Mademoiselle, give a smell, you got Mel. You've got You've Mel. got Mel. Okay. And Mel has Beth Anderson. Did you notice the end of the jingle? Mademoiselle give a smell. You've got Mel. Oh, nice. So, so Beth, it's great to have you on You've Got Mel. Uh, Thank you. you were highly recommended by Colleen. Uh, Colleen Puff, who's a wonderful writer, and you are a very prolific writer. Of nonfiction for children. Prolific is a relative term. I don't feel prolific, but I, I, yeah. If you if you squish time together, you you're more prolific. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know. So show us. You 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 have four recent books. That I call that prolific. Okay. Thank you. The first one is an inconvenient alphabet. Ben Franklin and Noah Webster's Spelling Revolution. Why did they make a revolution, Beth? Well, it's nice to have a different kind of revolution. You know, it's sort of educational revolution. They wanted to change, well, Ben Franklin wanted to change the alphabet because we have letters we don't really use, right? And, and we have multiples for sounds. So he and Noah Webster actually tried to change the spelling of the American English words. And how, how did they fare? Well, you know, it didn't go over that well. People don't like to change. Even if uh, it would be more convenient in the end, they just can't stand the inconvenience getting there. So Noah persisted long past uh, Ben's death, and he ended up with the first American dictionary. 
which standardized spelling for the first time. You know, before that you could spell any way you wanted to and it was okay. No spelling tests. Really? Cool. Yeah. No spelling bees. No, because anything you said was okay. I once had to spell diarrhea. <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough one. I still can't spell that one. Better to spell it than to have it. That is true. So, so that's so that that must be a remarkable book, and um, I would be very happy to to buy it and read it, um, and I shall the next time I'm in the states. Uh, and uh, what's your next book? The second one that came out in January 2020 is Lizzie Demands a Seat: Elizabeth Jennings Fights for Streetcar Rights, and this is the story of a woman in New York City, much like Rosa Parks. She was ejected from the streetcar in 1854. So it's a full century before Rosa wow. Parks. Yeah, which is kind of mind blowing. And it she ended up with the first courtroom victory for eliminating segregation on streetcars on public transportation. Wow. So, you know, she kind of led the way she was um, standing on the shoulders of parents and grandparents and other area other leaders like Frederick Douglass. But um, after her, you know, her verdict only desegregated one streetcar line. So others had to keep stepping up and stepping up and getting ejected and taking it to court. And eventually um, segregation on streetcars was eliminated, I think, in 1879. And this, in was in, this was in New York. New York City, yeah. Shame on you, America. Yep. That's wonderful. So then the third book that came out in fall last year is Smelly Kelly and his Super Oh, I, I, I'm not prolific. Every year I have one or two books out, but I'm, you know. Well, this there was two for 2020. I got three <laughs> next year, so I could be totally bonkers trying to do all this. But as uh, this is how James Kelly's nose saved the New York City subway. And this was a really, really fun story without a lot of information. So I had to do a little bit of uh, imagining myself to get the story started. Uh, he was a guy with an extraordinary nose, an immigrant from Ireland, who uh, got a job in the subway after he came to New York City. And it was the early days of the subway, the 1920s, 30s, 40s. He worked there, you know, the rest of his life. That was his career. And he found that his extraordinary nose was quite useful in the subway because he could smell water dripping and catch things before they caved in and he could smell gas leaks of all and chemicals of all kinds. So he was sort of an inventor and uh, a detective. And it's just really a fun story. But I had to try to, you know, bring this all together in a meaningful way for kids. So I sort of imagined him in the opening as a kid who wanted something much more exciting than an extraordinary nose, you know, like big muscles or x-ray vision or something like that. And so it sort of has this superhero thread for an everyday hero. And Beth, can we do the sequel? Yeah, I, I mean, this is what is totally fun with this book is that about a week before it came out, one of his relatives contacted me. I had looked and I couldn't find them. I couldn't find his whole history because with a name like James Kelly in New York City, you know, that's pretty tough. Turns out I had the wrong James Kelly, but one of his granddaughters contacted me and so I got to communicate with the with the family a little bit and his daughter who still lives I think she lives in New Jersey now but 
his only daughter. And so I got to send her a copy of the book, but it was very fun. And they gave me additional information and that was just that's incredible. They should, honor. Get to, they should get to ride the New York subway for free. They should after that. But I, I want to be your sequel, Beth. <laughs> Smelly Mel? Smelly Melly. <laughs> right. I think we can do it. The guy who left everything to smell people. All right. Now, I'll, I'll pitch that to you when we're, okay. off, when we're offline. All right. Uh <laughs> I, I like I, I really connected with Smelly Kelly, except well, I, I made a career smelling people's breath. If you can believe it, that's up close and personal. It sure is. I don't do it anymore. Corona, you know. Well, we got masks, so you know. It's it's not this. It's not as much fun smelling somebody <laughs> through a mask. No. But this show is about you, and and your new book, Tad Lincoln. The new one is Tad Lincoln's Restless Wriggle, Pandemonium and Patience in the President's House. It's another nonfiction, really fun story, but also has a really tender side of Abe Lincoln and his son, Tad, his youngest son. Tad was kind of a terror in the White House for quite a while. And when Willie was alive, he and he, the two brothers just had a great time. Can you imagine just exploring the attic and the roof and hanging out with the soldiers on the grounds? I mean, it was just lots of fun for a kid, but everybody else was expecting some really presidential type behavior and he didn't really get it. But he had his, he had his own personal issues. And when I dug into those, his story became very, very meaningful because he was one of those kids that has just super energy. And I think a lot of it probably came from frustration because when the experts have looked at his speech that's reported and you know some of the anecdotes, like he had food specially prepared, mushy food because his teeth were a mess. He had an orthodontic appliance of some kind. And so they believe he had a partial cleft palate that he had, um, a very bad or a very incomprehensible speech. He had learning disabilities probably. And, you know, so basically everybody rejected him as just get out of my way. You're just making trouble. And he was very creative and sort of had a wisdom beyond his years, which was really cool because it reminded me of kids I've had in school as a teacher who are different kinds of learners. And, you know, they're kind of hard to deal with but they really have a lot to offer in their own special way. And if you can reach them, they're just real treasures. So listen, I, I really connected with uh, Smelly Kelly. I, I'm tempted to say Smelly Melly. Um, I, really, I really loved it. And, and Tad Lincoln, I loved even more because you managed to share that kid's quirkiness and his father, Abe Lincoln, his empathy and his humanity. I think that that's a marvelous book. Thank uh, you. And um, now I'm going to ask the question: How how sure. did this how did this all start? Take me all, back to take me back to the age of zero, Beth. All the writing. How did they? Oh, the age of zero. Well, I was born in Chicago, and I was raised most of my life in a small town area in Illinois. Um, but I lived on a tree nursery that my dad managed. So, you know, at the time I really wasn't 
felt happy about it because I couldn't walk to my friend's house in town and things like that and go, you know, go to the bowling alley and go get ice cream. Well, what was that? Was town Chicago? No, the town was, I lived in Round Lake and I went to school in Grays Lake. So I was in the kind of rural area, you know, with a tree nursery, which had been a farm, but now had hundreds of acres of plants growing. So, you know, I always felt a little deprived, but now I realize I had so many adventures that most kids don't get because I could ride my bike to the back pond and go fishing and I could just explore and, you know, and I could have my first job be counting trees and measuring shrubs. You know, what could be more exciting than that? <laughs> Especially because sometimes they move, you know, like you wake up the next morning and the ones you've counted are somewhere else. Yeah. It's terrible. So, um, and were you a, a tomboy? You went fishing, you counted trees? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, we played baseball at the loading dock and with my, you know, just us kids, but I really didn't have a lot of kids to play with, just my siblings. So it was, you know, I guess like growing up a little bit in, in rural America, although, I, you know, I went to school in Grays Lake, which was a town of about 5,000 then, but now it's much larger, more of a suburb of Chicago. But at the time it was, you know, pretty isolated, small town America. And then when I went away, well, I, if y'all want to get writing in here, I, I loved writing always. And um, I started writing poetry, I think about second grade. And my third, fourth, fifth grade teachers, they just encouraged me. We had lots of writing time. We did puppet shows and plays and all kinds of creative things. And, and I remember some pieces I did in seventh or eighth grade where the teacher was very complimentary, very encouraging, and she wanted me to go submit it to magazines. But, you know, I never did. I just, I didn't know how. There was no internet to answer all your questions. <laughs> so it, it required a lot more work, like phone calls and actual letters. In high school, I, you know, did the usual stuff. I was a good student. I, I enjoyed the writing classes there, too, and went off to college and studied, um, linguistics because I love language. Mm -hmm. Well, ho hold on for a second, Beth. Uh, so what age group do you aim to write for in your books? These are generally about seven to 12. So they're picture books, but they're, they're quite advanced picture books. Yeah, there's a lot of these kind of picture books now where they go to that older audience. And it, it is kind of a conundrum because you, you know, those are not the kids that are buying picture books they don't want to be caught dead with a picture book in their arms <laughs> because so, they're into novels <laughs> so so who buys them well it's a lot of educators mm -hmm. and some of the you know parents and parents of younger kids you know i think their kindergarten is probably the low end five okay. years old so and, it, know, and of course it depends who reads it to them and if they explain things or if they are entertaining enough that they can hold their attention through 800 to a thousand words but with the art and everything i think it appeals like five and up can, can you open um smelly kelly and just share this brilliant artwork oh yeah this is jen harney and she is quite amazing. She works digitally. This is the opening spread where he imagines having a greater superpower. And then the next 
No, it was like two pages later. The one, the spread that really blew me away was this one, his first foray into the subway. And I guess I just, the drama of the dark color was just amazing. The artwork is incredible. And, all, and your writing is also incredible. And all the imagining that went on to recreating this character, um, we know so little about him really. Yeah, there's, there was only three articles and then right before it got published, there was a fourth one found at the New York Transit Museum and they sent me that, but it was kind of too late to change the book, but it, it reinforced that I had it right on, on what I did do. Um, so yeah, he's just, he's fun. And uh, Jen Harney gave him orange hair so yeah. that he would stand out in all the scenes, which was something I thought, wow, that is so smart. I don't know illustrator tricks like well, that. Yeah, I, but I mean, Ke Ke Kelly, and he's, he's Irish, you know? Yeah. If, if if he were Jewish, he would probably wouldn't have that orange hair. No, that would be out of character. <laughs> so, but um, it, it's incredible. So so somebody should write or create a, a super, a super uh, hero who smelt something going on in India and flies through the center of the earth to yep. catch to catch the culprits who are stealing the spices from the Indian factory. Yeah, I think he's an overlooked superhero. Yeah. But uh, what I want to ask you is another question. Um, if you watch my interviews, I'm intrigued by the age at, for which people write. And I have this theory, I'm not a psychologist, but I have a theory that we end up writing uh, for our inner child. Uh, and the inner child gets stuck at some age. My inner child is stuck at five and I know why. Uh, <laughs> so do you have a stuck inner child at the age of six or seven, Beth? I think I do. And you know, that's the age where I really got into writing, but it's also the age I love to teach, like six to 10. I love those, actually more, I, I really go for like third through middle grade because I love the age where their cognitive abilities just start, you know, falling into place and they can do critical thinking. Because that's when I think learning becomes so fun and you can offer them all kinds of things and, and they will come up with lots of creative thoughts and questions. Wow, we're gonna go there in a minute. So let's go back to university. You studied okay. you studied language? Yeah, I was all, well I started out in international relations. And then I fell in love and I decided I didn't want I needed to stay in the US. So, and I and I had one class in um, anthropological linguistics and it was fascinating. And so I changed my major to linguistics, much to the chagrin of my parents who thought, what is she going to do with this? <laughs> Right. Hold on. I, I teach my students that the elective courses at university are the important ones. Yeah. They're the ones who make a difference. Wow. Yeah. So, so you followed an elective course all the way, and it became your main interest. Well, it it was kind of in my it was in my major ah. area, but you know it was a minor class. Yeah, and it was so fascinating that I ended up transferring to another school that offered linguistics as a major. I was taking Russian, I took Arabic, I took- You studied Russian? Spanish. I tried for two and a half years to learn Russian. 
Почему? Почему ты учился русский язык? It's been so long. Я учился русский язык тоже. I also studied Russian. Yeah, I see that. But, but there's a big difference between us. I, I forgot started, everything. No, and I didn't because in Israel there's a million Russians. Yeah. But um, I studied Russian for no reason whatsoever. And you were studying linguistics. Well, I started it actually when I started international relations. I was taking ah, okay. I took it for two and a half years in college and I just gave up. I couldn't get over the hump, you know, <laughs> into that fluency part where you just have to keep thinking so hard about everything. You just can't do it. Yeah, I know. I know but, exactly. But I, I was totally fascinated by, you know, the language histories were borrowing, you know, like chai is a word that crosses many languages and the word for oil. And, you know, it's just really fascinating because it shows so many things about the world and culture and trade and all sorts of things. And, you know, so language is great and, and get, studying languages with three different writing systems also kind of made me crazy, but it was fascinating. But then, uh, you know, later I, I graduated with this degree and I ended up doing mundane things and I worked with a little bit of translation from Russian journals at Battelle Institute in um, uh, Columbus, Ohio. And I ended up with a paraprofessional job when suddenly English as a second language became a thing in schools when all the we had all the refugees from Southeast Asia arriving and they needed support. And so it became a discipline, but there were no teachers for it. Nobody had the training at that point because it hadn't been a real discipline. So I ended up with a as a paraprofessional, I was supporting the Spanish teacher, teaching these kids mostly, the first group was from Pakistan actually. And then we started to get- Oh, hold on, um, hold on Beth. So these kids came from Pakistan to America. Yep. And there was this Spanish teacher teaching them Spanish Pretending, no. it, pretending it was English. No, she she was the head of the department or the of the courses, but she had a full schedule of teaching Spanish. Oh, oh, okay. So the kids spent their day with me. Who learning, been, learning English. And I yeah, and I hadn't been trained in teaching because when I was in college, everybody said, "Don't bother with a teaching degree because you will never get a job." Why not? There was a glut of teachers. Ah, because I would love to have you as my teacher. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, I, you know, the ice, it was sort of fly by the seat of your pants. Basically, you know, that's been my life of jumping into things, flying by the seat of my pants. But I loved it. And um, I, w I felt like I really knew how to help them because I had had such a smattering of, of language stuff. So then when I went, when we moved to Atlanta, I, I uh, went back to school, got a master's in... One second, hold on. You, we moved to Atlanta. So you married the guy you were in love with? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He worked uh, for a retailer. He got transferred. So we had moved from Ohio to Connecticut, where I was use, where I started the ESL. And then we moved to Atlanta. And I got the endorsement for ESL, got certification, and ended up getting a master's in reading there because there was no master's still in ESL. And I started teaching it and I just loved it. And it was just a terrific experience. And then we eventually moved to Texas 
in the Dallas area. I taught there for 15 years and then I retired and followed my grandchildren to Colorado. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the best. There's worse places to follow your grandchildren. Well, that's, you know, and that was a great place to be able to choose too, because prior we had no choices. We just went where they told us, but all great experiences and lots of, you know, exposure to different kinds of people and places and it's all good. Yeah. You really created your faith. I teach my students to create their faith. So uh, now we're getting back to your, your beautiful writing for children. So how did that evolve? Well, when I retired, I used to, I, you know, I got to thinking my husband's in the basement building guitars because he's always wanted to do that. So I need something to do. One second, <laughs> your, your husband is now in the basement building a guitar? Yeah. He, you, build, can, he, he builds acoustic guitars. It's something he always wanted to do. And he kind of. I, I want to interview him. Okay, I'll get him on. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he does amazing work. I, I got to have him on the show. Connect us, connect us. Okay. That's a, I'm a musician. That's remarkable. We have two connections. Smells Smell, and music. Smelly Melly Kelly and your husband in the basement. It's like I keep, I keep a husband in the basement. <laughs> he wasn't going to come out and go hiking with me every day. So I needed something to do. So I started exploring opportunities. And and the thing was, I, I wanted my freedom. I, we wanted to come and go as we please and, you know, do what we wanted to do. And a lot of volunteer jobs actually end up like a real job because you're expected to show up regularly. <laughs> I kind of wanted to just let that responsibility go and not set the alarm, you know. So I, one of the things that had always been in the back of my mind was writing for children and I had I had taken a few feeble shots at it years ago, but yeah, before internet, it's really hard to figure out how to do it. And I didn't have the time. So I just decided I would give it a shot. I had told my students on the last day of school and they asked me, what are you going to do? And I, you know, admitted, you know, it's hard to admit that you want to try something. So I don't know, intimidating and likely to fail. <laughs> And they said, yeah, you should do that. So I owed it to them. I owed it to myself. I it researched the industry and um, just started joining critique groups and SCBWI and just learning, learning, learning. And just when I was ready to quit, I found the idea of <laughs> the alphabet book and it renewed and I, and I went to a retreat and I just dug in, you know, double time and then things started to happen. That's remarkable. So so who is your agent? My agent is Stephanie Fretwell Hill, who is with Red Fox Literary. Yes, and she as we speak, agent. she's probably closed for queries, probably. Yep, yep, Red Fox is. Yeah. They are I, a great agency. Only yeah. do kidlet. No, I mean, so do you, do you appreciate that you are like one in a thousand writers? who succeeded in getting a really good agent and all these book deals, do you, do you appreciate that? I do, it's kind of mind boggling and, and it's still very surreal that this is actually happening, you know, and to get a book in your hands that you started 
with your, you know, a few years earlier and throwing words on the page and hoping you could make it into a story. It is. It's it's humbling and it's it's mind boggling. It's humbling for me to be interviewing you. Oh. <laughs> I'm humbled I, to be here. No, don't don't be humbled. I take everybody. No, I don't oh. really I Beth, I only interview writers who have traditionally published books because I am in awe of people like you. Um, and the people watching the show should realize that you are really one in 1,000, maybe one in 5,000, nobody knows. Uh, but you know, like today there's the PB pitch and there's gonna yeah. be 5,000 wow. children's writers looking for agents. Yeah. And you found one of the best and one of the, be one of the best agencies. Well, you know, it. I think that children's books look so easy. Everybody thinks they're so easy because they don't have a lot of words. They're just short little stories. But, and I, I was probably very naive when I started thinking it was easier than it was. And maybe that's a good thing because if I knew how bad, how hard it was, I maybe not have tried. Or make and, that and, and, and you almost gave up. I did. Which, I is was starting... which is something that I do every month. So, <laughs> well, you just started to think what I could be putting my time and effort into something more beneficial than you know rejections. But it's a lot of learning, and I think you have to kind of you have to get to the point where you're willing to say, "I will listen to all the criticism and all the feedback, and I will try to." incorporate the ideas and get better at this because it's painful to get it but at the same time you have to admit there's a lot of people that know more about it than you do so i call it the itch you know it's like um writing is like having this itch mm -hmm. that, that you have to scratch yeah and um that's for me the it's the itchy scratchy i have to write i have to scratch and I keep, uh, I'm going to keep at it until I'm dead. Maybe even after I'm dead, but we'll see. But I, my, my question is, now that you have four books under your belt, and they, I, I've read two of them and they're really wonderful, and um, I'm going to try and get my hands on the other two. I love languages, and um, I really want to read that uh, that pre-Ben Webster dictionary book of yours. <laughs> An inconvenient I, alphabet. I Yes, and you know, I also make up my own words. I do too, I like to do that. Also, we have to compare uh, compare our dictionaries, <laughs> our, our fictionaries. I just throw them into a story when I feel the need, you know, when there's not a word out there that is perfect, I just sort uh -huh. of do my own thing. Well, I, I have a fictionary, I, I make up words. I will send you my fictionary and you'll send me yours. And then maybe we'll find some Michigane to to start a dictionary where people can contribute all okay. of their weird and crazy words. What do you say? I think it's great. You could be the Beth Webster. And I also love pulling words from the past. Oh. You know, when you go into the Revolutionary War era words, there's some doozers in there. <laughs> there's doozers and humdingers. That's right. They've been lost, and I think they need to come back. Let's do something on lost words. But I, I'm actually, because I'm a big fan of Lewis Carroll mm. and Jabberwocky, I like to 
work on future words. Oh, yeah. So we can do words past, present, and future. Yeah, it's going to take some time. <laughs> ah. I don't know if I can commit totally to this. <laughs> One hour a month. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll send you mine. You send me yours. I have a whole fictionary. I don't have mine organized like that. I just sort of randomly think of it when I need them. Oh, but so I want to challenge you to have a little notebook of fictionary words. Okay. Okay. So um, that leads me to my uh, almost last question because I don't want to, um, you know, uh, take your whole day up. Okay, then I will. Uh, I, I have three hours. Um, but what I want to ask you is, you've done so well at, at nonfiction. And you love creativity. And you have a terrific sense of humor. And you almost made up Smelly Kelly. Why don't you write fiction? I started, when I first started write, trying to write, I, I was playing with fiction. And most of what I produced was really lame. <laughs> and maybe because I just hadn't learned enough yet. But I wrote down, I wrote, I started working on one story of something that I'd heard about in college that had just been in my head for years. And I thought, what a cute story that would make for kids. And when I started to do that, and then also dig into some other kind of historical things, I really loved it. And I found that it was it was just where I belonged. It was my niche. And you know, when I was in the classroom, the kind of stuff I write is the kind of stuff I love to use in the classroom. Because ah. you could teach all kinds of literature skills with it, you know, reading and figurative language and just all kinds of things. But at the same time, there was learning and there was content support and there were the reality of the world was sinking in and kind of opening kids minds to new ideas and and new things and I, you know the reaction would always be is this true and I said yes it's true fact is stranger than fiction sometimes and so that's kind of what I look for are those factual stories that are just you know unheard of overlooked bizarre you know that make you go wow that's interesting that's what yeah, I like but, you know, you have this terrific skill. Like, and if, if you came out next year with a book about George Washington's horse who learned to cook, and you told everybody it was a real story, I think that I would believe you. <laughs> I you're, don't you're, know. You're that persuasive. We want kids to start checking sources, don't we? <laughs> I think you must be uh, transparent in your author's note and say, I made this up or we're not sure about that. You know, yeah, they need I, to be I, critical I, thinkers. I, I believe in being translucent. Okay. Right? But um, so I no, it's incredible because I have trouble writing nonfiction because I was a scientist for 30 years and I got sick of looking for the truth. And I have more fun making, making yeah. it up. You know, and, and I should have done that as a scientist. I would have done much better, you know, uh, publishing all yeah. kinds of things that aren't true. 
you can get ahead that way also. Um, but we're, we're, we're near the end of the show. And um, are you bringing your husband up to join you or not? I, I think he's still in his morning workout right now. We haven't had breakfast yet. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not going to smell him. Oh, do you want, well, do you want, do you want to bring I, him on the show? I don't think he's ready right now. <laughs> okay. The reason is because at the end of the program, I always ask my interviewees whether they like the Beatles. Yeah. We spoke about the Doors. Do you like the Beatles? I I do. Okay. What is your favorite song? Oh, I wasn't the biggest Beatles fan ever. I was partial to Herman's Hermits. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I, I realize I, I realize oh. now that. <laughs> They weren't that great. Hermits, hermits weren't that great. Musically, pretty simple stuff. But you know, it was good. I, I have, I have their records over here somewhere. <laughs> uh, you, you know, a, a few things about Hermits, hermits. We we didn't know in America that Peter Noon was a was a uh, television star in Britain. Yeah, I, I, I this is new to me. Yeah, and he was like sixteen. But, and, and they sang covers. They didn't write their own songs. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love, I still love Herman's Hermits. Yeah. So, yeah, so so trash the question about the Beatles. Everybody sings a Beatles song on my show. Yeah. What song did you love of Herman's Hermits? I, I just, I had one album of theirs. And uh, I don't know what it was. I don't remember which song it was that really got me I, it was just you know that little accent the innocence you know <laughs> yeah, yeah Beth, I'm, not, I'm not gonna let you go don't without... don't make me sing please no I, I you don't have to sing but you, <laughs> I'm you, terrible no you're not everybody can sing I, you can't, the, you, I, but, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make you but you can't leave the show without singing something Oh, really? Ah, they didn't tell you? No. <laughs> Oops. Some people just shouldn't sing in public, that's all. <laughs> it's just you and me. What would you like to sing? I don't know. I can't come up with a song. I'd go for Bruce Springsteen or John Prine or something, you know. Go for Bruce. I'm not great with all the lyrics. Just make them up. <laughs> Why don't you choose your favorite Beatles song? And then you're going to sing it? If you sing it. But how do I know you know it? My favorite Beatles song is called Here, There, and Everywhere. I probably only know the first line. <laughs> you want to try yesterday? Sure. Yesterday. Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. <laughs> Keep going. That's all. That's all. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Yesterday. Love was such an easy game to play. Now, now I, it looks as though I... I 
I hide away, I need to hide away or something. Yeah. 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 Hey, this is from a long time ago and it's, I got to bubble up, you know, I need a little time in there. It might be the beginning of a musical book. Who knows? I don't know. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to say? I think I've said the good, the good stuff. I You've think asked you all the great questions. This was no, no, no. This was all you, dear. Um, I'm hoping to meet you someday. That would be great. Um, you write incredibly. Thank um, you. I, I salute your abilities, your hard work, because these books, each of them, is a ton of work. Yeah. They're a ton. And uh, and really, you are one of thousands and thousands of people that uh, have found a voice and uh, wonderful books that find their way into children's minds and hearts. Thank you. Yeah, I, I try to touch both. And you do. So, Beth, this was wonderful. Thank and, you so uh, much. This was fun. It was fun. I think it was too much fun. I, I wasn't hard on you because you look so nice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe next time. Okay. So, Beth Anderson, Children's Writer Supreme, thank you very much for being on. You've got Bell. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.